in fact, to him, uh, uh, the dispossession of indigenous peoples was uh, somehow the foreign versions of the enclosures and the uh, uh, of the enclosures of land uh, on former commoners that afflicted England. And he saw, therefore, uh, landlordism at home and colonialism abroad as two complementary phenomena. Both were aimed at the privatization of land. everyone and welcome to another installment of New Work in Intellectual History, a podcast produced by the Institute of Intellectual History at the University of St Andrews. I'm a host for this episode, Robin Mills. And this week we are joined by Matilda Katzola. Hello, Matilda, how are you doing? Hello. Hi, hi Robin. I'm fine, thank you. Thank you very much for the kind invitation. Well, my pleasure. So Matilda is a postdoctoral researcher at the Max Planck Institute for Legal History and Legal Theory at Frankfurt and Main. She was educated MA and PhD at the University of Bologna and is the author of the recently published, I have the book in my hand, I'm waving it, uh, <laughs> recently published The Political Thought of Thomas Spence, Beyond Poverty and Empire, published by Routledge in their new Ideas Beyond Borders Studies and Transnational Intellectual History series. And it's a very interesting book, something slightly... Um, not our usual fare here, it's usually canonical authors perhaps on this series, and so it's interesting to come from a slightly different angle, but I will let Matilda tell us about that. Um, so, given that I'm imagining most of our listeners won't know very much about Thomas Spence, uh, could you introduce him to us, maybe tell us a little bit about who he is and why we might be interested in reading about him? Okay, um, yeah, uh, thank you, Robin, for your question. So, um, uh, Thomas Spence was a radical thinker and publisher, active between the castle and London between the last quarter of the 18th century and the mid uh, to, to the mid 1810s. Um, he was born in Newcastle upon Tyne to poor Scottish parents in 1750. <clears throat> And he actually worked as a school teacher for years in Newcastle. Um, and it was in Newcastle that uh, he started um, conceptualizing and that he first um, expounded the main tenets of uh, what he called uh, his political plan, uh, into which if you want, I can delve uh, later, but in very general terms, um, <clears throat> Spence's plan was aimed um, at the abolition of private land ownership, first of all, at the return to the enjoyment of common property in land, uh, and in the process, uh, uh, state apparatus would be disestablished uh, and would be replaced with a decentralized parish system. And last but not least, the plan, Spence's plan, was also aimed at the dismantlement of European empires. Um, so um, he was born in Newcastle, then worked uh, there for um, uh, and lived there for several years, and then. Um, uh, late 1780s, early 1790s, it's not um, clear, uh, he uh, probably due to his uh, uh, difficult economic situation, uh, Spence relocated to London. And here uh, he opened uh, there, sorry, uh, he opened a bookstore and then a bookshop uh, where he sold banned works by other uh, authors and published his own radical pamphlets. And it was especially there that his activity as a publicist and uh, publisher grew particularly eclectic. Um, 
he made use not only of pamphlets and chapbooks, but also of um, uh, songs, of broadsides, uh, tokens, medallions, uh, and also graffiti um, to advertise and to publicize his um, political plan. Um, in London, he also became acquainted with the London Corresponding Society, the Working Class and Republican Association. Um, However, it was not, and an he, he, he was among the members of the society for a while. Um, however, it was not for his, uh, uh, however, he soon became the target of um, state repression. And that was not due to his practical political activities, but, but mostly due to his intellectual activities. Um, once in London, in fact, um, his uh, thought uh, became uh, particularly threatening to state authorities uh, because it started explicitly advocating a violent revolution of the poor um, as the method by which his plan for the abolition of private uh, land ownership might be established. He uh, subversively uh, resumed uh, what Edmund Burke had uh, referred to with content as the Swedish multitude, um, the, the, the multitude of the poor um, um, who represented a threat to the property establishment, Spence recovered that uh, contemptuous expression um, to refer with pride to his preferred political actor uh, and interlocutor. Um, um, who would accomplish in his mind, in his hopes, the Spence and revolution. Um, so it was during the 1790s that Spence um, uh, became a victim of uh, state repression and censorship. Um, he was arrested, threatened, hindered in his activities as a publisher and a bookseller several times. Um, despite all the intimidation he experienced, he stubbornly carried on his activities. Um, probably the high point of um, the persecution that he suffered was reached in 1801. Um, uh, when he was convicted by the Court of King's Bench for the publication of uh, one of his writing, uh, writings, the lengthiest one, The Restor of Society to Its Natural State, and Spence was eventually sentenced to one year's imprisonment and a fine. Uh, just to uh, to get to the uh, to the end of his life, then uh, uh, he, he continued publishing also after uh, um, uh, after his um, time in times in prison. Uh, he continued publishing and writing until uh, approximately uh, 1807. Uh, and probably at the beginning of the 19th century, he started gathering an informal group of followers around him, which at the beginning uh, was probably nothing more than an informal group of discussion, and then became formalized uh, right after Spence's death, uh, uh, which occurred in 1814. This uh, informal group of followers became formalized as the Society of Spence and Philanthropists, on which I can say a few words later if you're interested. Yeah, we'll come back to sort of his longer lasting influence uh, towards the sort of the back end of our discussion, I suppose. I'm interested in where he's getting his ideas from. He sounds like an autodidact from a poor background. Yeah. Yeah. How is he getting involved in political debate, political thinking? Yeah. What ideas is he, what traditions is he engaging with? Um, how much of this is innovation? One of the things you do one of the points you stress in the book is that he has often been seen as, well, what's the phrase? I've got the phrase here, an eccentric and anachronistic figure who kind of sits in between civil war radicalism and, you know, the Chartists and sort of mid-19th century socialism. And he's kind of in the middle and people kind of gloss over him. But yeah, I wonder whether you could, you know, uh, go into a bit, bit of depth about 
where his ideas are coming from, how he maybe should be seen as a bit more serious, a bit more significant than that kind of a kind of a bridging figure between those two uh, more substantial moments of radical thought in, in England or Britain. Uh, thank you so much for this question. Um, yeah, um, so um, um, I think that the fact that Spence has always, has often been considered as a bridging figure, as you were uh, saying, also depends on the fact that he was actually living in transitional years in uh, British history. He was uh, uh, still witnessing subsisting early modern institutions, which were uh, at the turn of the 19th century coexisting with novel production processes. Um, and I think that his thought kind of uh, kind of registered this uh, transition, this historical transition, probably also without being able to uh, fully understand, to fully grasp the implications of those processes. And uh, I, I mean, I, I think that historians such as E.P. Thompson, who uh, defined Spence as a crank, I mean, th that is not a completely unjustified uh, um, uh, uh, definition, I think. Of course, uh, A.P. Thompson was interested in the making of the industrial working class in Britain at the time of the first industrial revolution. So, in fact, Spence's thought, who was so concerned about the land uh, and the property of the land uh, at a time when uh, uh, exploitation and oppression were not so much grounded upon the land, but were uh, uh, linked to novel production processes and uh, acquired also the movable form of wages. So yeah, I just wanted to uh, uh, point out that I, I don't I, I see why um, uh, several historians uh, understood Spence an as an eccentric figure, uh, but probably uh, once contextualized within his times and the transitional years of English history he was uh, living in, uh, his thought um, can emerge as responding to the um, dislocation of uh, uh, the commoners he was, he was witnessing to the um, uh, transformation of commoners into proletarians uh, and into wage workers. And he also, uh, and his thought is also very interesting because uh, he uh, accounted for the agrarian origins of industrial capitalism, uh, which is something that later uh, analysis has uh, uh, stressed. Uh, and, 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 Spence, uh, uh, and Spence fully realized that uh, uh, industrial capitalism in Britain had its origins in the eviction of commoners and independent producers from the lands, uh, which had been deprived of their independent means of subsistence and then turned into proletarians and forced and compelled to flee to towns and look for a wage employment there. Um, so, uh, I, I wanted also to uh, uh, say a few words on the, uh, the first point that you raised, that uh, Spence is in fact an unconventional figure, uh, because he doesn't really fit into the classic uh, profile outline of political philosophers, uh, which is absolutely true. Um, he was a poor, he was self-taught, uh, he uh, was a, a foreigner, a kind of a foreigner in London. He came from uh, Newcastle, uh, so from the north of England. He also had a distinctive northern accent and uh, uh, it's not an accident that I, I, didn't, I didn't delve into this point in the book. Uh, um, um, 
to be honest, but other scholars have uh, written extensively on uh, Spence's language reform, his reform of the English language aimed uh, at turning English into a phonetic language uh, in order to help uh, especially uh, uneducated people, uh, uh, uneducated people and foreigners uh, to help, uh, uh, sorry, uh, uh, help them learn uh, uh, the English language. Um, uh, yeah, moreover, Spence, as already mentioned, was a victim of state repression. Um, so uh, it, it really doesn't fit into the uh, standard, um, yeah, uh, into the standard profile of the political philosopher. However, uh, despite all this, uh, uh, the book was also aimed is also aimed uh, at showing that Spence was not unaware uh, of previous traditions of thought uh, and not even of um, uh, the new classics of his times, such as Thomas Paine. Uh, I think that uh, maybe I can um, this I can say a few words on uh, one of the sources um, that. Um, um, uh, yeah, as, as scholars of Spencerism and of Thomas Spence in particular, in particular, us usually uh, make use of, usually analyze in uh, dealing with Spence, which is is uh, pig's meat or lessons for the Swedish multitude. It was a collection of extracts, uh, a, a, a collection of classic political political extracts, which were uh, reprinted in, as he said, weekly penny numbers uh, for the um, uh, poor uh, and often also, uh, um, yeah, uh, often uneducated uh, members of the Swedish multitude. And um, uh, Pigsmith, uh, which was published in three volumes, uh, quite uh, large ones, um, uh, between uh, uh, 1793 and 1795, um, um, uh, put together, among others, also extracts from John Locke, James Harrington, Montesquieu, Rousseau, Voltaire, and others. Uh, and this collection is really interesting because it provides to us uh, an insight into what Spence himself knew and read, uh, and apparently this was, was quite a lot, um, proving that he was much better read uh, than it has been usually assumed. And it also demonstrates, I think, probably even more interestingly, that Spence wanted the poor and the oppressed to know the classics of political thought. He wanted the poor to engage, to undertake the revolution, but at the same time, he wanted them to be aware uh, of uh, the classics. Uh, um, and uh, as if he thought that in order for them to be, to be ready to undertake the revolution, they had previously to be instructed uh, uh, to political authors and notions. And this is, I think, a very sophisticated and very modern intellectual approach. Um, so yeah, I, I'm not sure if I uh, have answered to all the points in your question. Uh, I think so. So that he's kind of involved in the democratization of political debate. He is trying to disseminate knowledge of contemporary political theory beyond the usual, usual confines of what the what, uh, Edmund Burke's political nation, right? your 400,000 property owners and so on, uh, in 1800, say. Um, and he's trying, to, he's trying to go beyond that and inform and organise or motivate uh, the wider British populace to, you said revolt, right? This is a, he is a political agitator seeking active revolution in Britain is that is that the goal um yeah yeah that was the goal um so several of his contemporaries were um 
uh, also also the, the other members, several members of the London Corresponding Society uh, were advocating the extension of voting rights. Uh, Spence was not against, of course, the extension of the suffrage, but his political aims uh, were much more radical, I think, than the ones of most of the members of the uh, London Corresponding Society. He did want to overthrow the uh, social uh, property establishment of Britain. Uh, and um, yeah, in this, he had... Um, I think a very, uh, he had a deeply social understanding of power and political relations. Uh, and uh, his whole uh, work is um, disseminated of um, um, statements about the social roots of power. Uh, and the fact that, as I had already mentioned, it, uh, 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 power and uh, oppression in general were for him uh, grounded in, la in the land, in the possession of the land, uh, which is also, yeah, um, as I was saying, what made him sound a little anachronistic to, uh, uh, to some scholars interested in the first industrial revolution. So I think it's a good moment then for us to turn to the central kind of um, focus of the book, which is Spence's plan, which is the word I think you give to the his uh, desires for you know, radical reform of land ownership in Britain, but that remain constant across all of his publications for several decades. So it's not in one book. It's repeat, is that, so you, you fleshed this out for me, but it, it's a plan, but that describes the core ideas, the core goals he has, but as they are disseminated in a variety of different books, in a variety of different uh, media, different forms. Can you explain what that plan is and, uh, you know, it's key parts. Oh, oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, you were, um, uh, you, you are absolutely right when you say that uh, uh, the, the core feature, the core features of the plan basically remained unaltered uh, for several, several decades, uh, several decades uh, for. Uh, uh, um, uh, but uh, the uh, the plan basically, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, several it, it it features several additions over the years uh, one of them uh, probably the most uh, important uh, was the um um, the, the Spence's claim for a violent revolution, which was probably implied in the very at the very beginnings, uh, at the, in the very first formulations of the plan, but was explicitly uh, um, uh, advocated only um, uh, during the French Revolution. Um, so, but to go just back a second to what the plan was and to uh, delve uh, um, better into uh, its details. So, uh, as I was uh, saying at the beginning, the plan was a proposal for the abolition of the private land ownership and that was clear from its very first formulation in 1775. Um, so uh, uh, abolition of private land ownership and a return to the common enjoyment of the land. So a reestablishment of the commons let's say. Uh, in the process, the state apparatus would be dismantled and would be replaced by a with a decentralized and preferably republican parish system. The parish, this was another very important point of Spence's plan, um, the parish administration would partition and redistribute the plots of land to individuals and families, and everyone would pay rent for using and tilling the soil. So uh, uh, private property in land would be uh, forever abolished after the plan, after the establishment of the plan. However, individuals and families would retain a private, we could say, usufruct of the land, 
after paying a rent for using it. And this rent would be paid in place of all taxes uh, formerly collected and would be used by the parishes for many purposes, uh, including the funding of social services, such as hospitals and schools. Uh, Spence also anticipated that part of the total amount of the rents um, would be left over, and these remainders would constitute the dividends. That was a proposal which was first uh, expounded by Spence at, in the early 1780s. Uh, the dividends were shares of money uh, to be redistributed according to a quarterly schedule among all parishioners, all the inhabitants of the parishes. And the joint achievement of the return to the common property of the land and the redistribution of dividends would accomplish uh, one of uh, the two major purposes of the plan, what I think are the two major purposes of Spence's plan, which was the end of poverty, uh, understood as a condition of social dependence and subalternity. However, another important uh, uh, um, uh, aspect of the plan uh, uh, is, the, uh, is its trans transnational and transatlantic scope. In fact, the plan was also aimed at the I, I think, at the decolonization of the world. Um, uh, Spence was, in fact, uh, very critical uh, of uh, the British imperial civilizing mission. Uh, he defined colonialism as a very uncivil way of civilizing the world uh, in a sarcastic uh, way, of course. And uh, it was uh, um, uh, brought against slavery, uh, not so much as against uh, uh, colonialism and against uh, uh, the dispossession of uh, colonized peoples. But um, uh, he also, one of his, he also reprinted, uh, sorry, uh, he also minted some abolitionist tokens uh, among his uh, repertoire of, um, of coins. Um, and he considered, he made it clear, uh, especially in one important quote, that he considered also Native Americans and the enslaved peoples of African origins as part of his Swainish multitude. So the Swainish multitude would be a, a poor and multi-ethnic uh, um, multitude of the uh, uh, gathering, the dispossessed, the exploited, the pauperized, and the enslaved uh, as well. In fact, to him, uh, uh, the dispossession of indigenous peoples in colonized territories was uh, somehow the foreign versions of the enclosures and the uh, uh, of the enclosures of land uh, on former commoners that afflicted England. And he saw, therefore, uh, landlordism at home and colonialism abroad as two complementary phenomena, as both were aimed at the privatization of land. In fact, uh, I think that uh, the plan, uh, as I was uh, saying, that uh, at least since the mid 1790s, uh, being inspired by the French Revolution, Spence, the plan uh, was described as being implemented by means of a violent revolution. This violent revolution also um, featured um, uh, a colonial side as a war of independence, as a decolonizing process. And yeah, so I, I do think that the Spence and Revolution was thought by Spence as um, as uh, undertaking both at home, as uh, being undertaken both at home against landlordism and abroad against imperialism. I'm interested in where this stuff is coming from. I suppose we um, we touched on it a few minutes ago, but from the way you're describing uh, the plan, it sounds like the principal motivations are political or economic events that Spence is witnessing uh, happen in his country, as opposed to him engaging with existing 
philosophical traditions. I'm interested in that sort of uh, what, what's the balance there? Is he um, is he something sort of organic, you know, emerging organically, emerging naturally from his circumstances, or is he um, thoroughly uh, enmeshed in the political debate or influenced by the political debate of the time? Do you see what do you see the sort of the distinction? If he's someone coming from the lower orders, he's coming from Newcastle down to London. He's a political agitator from the bottom up. Um, how much of what he's doing is a, a response to actual events as opposed to what he might be reading in Adam Smith, say. Um, and I suppose, yeah, I do want to go a little bit further on the question of what he's reading, who he's inspired by or not inspired by. You mentioned the, you know, the British utopian tradition uh, quite a bit. I think it's in chapter three or four. Um, I, yeah, I wonder whether we could go a little bit further into uh, that that distinction between events versus books, and then if there is books and traditions, what books and traditions is he inspired by? Oh, thank you. Yeah, uh, this gives me also the opportunity to go back to the part of your uh, previous question uh, I didn't answer to um, uh, about uh, traditions of thought. Um, yeah, I do think that um, this is a very good question. Um, I, I, I never formulated this in my head like this, but it makes a lot of sense. And I do think that Spence uh, was primarily uh, inspired and moved by um, more than by single events, by social processes. Yeah. And some of them were very long term social processes, such as the enclosures and the uh, uh, eviction of, uh, of commoners being uh, uh, driven uh, out of the lands. And this is also why he, uh, uh, and, and these also, I think that these long term social processes also influenced him as he was looking for kind of uh, um, intellectual uh, uh, role models, the diggers or true levelers of the first uh, um, uh, English revolution were among his um, intellectual role models. He uh, uh, defined himself uh, quite a few times like a true leveler. Um, and, uh, and, and that was explained by uh, the similar processes that um, uh, Gerard Winstanley, the leader of the Ziggers, and Thomas Pence were witnessing, uh, uh, despite living at two uh, 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 different moments of English history. Um, um, uh, then, um, so his, I think that his engagement uh, with the um, uh, traditions of thought of the uh, 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 first English Revolution. So on the one hand, the diggers were true levelers. On the other hand, also James Harrington and republicanism uh, were due to this uh, uh, similarity of the social processes that they were witnessing. Um, after all, also uh, uh, James Harrington was for him a, a point of reference because uh, um, uh, Harrington uh, was among those who uh, stressed the correlation between uh, liberty and the distribution of landed property. Uh, um, uh, other, um, uh, other uh, engagements with uh, other thinkers, I think, were more uh, uh, theoretical. Um, and this is the case, I think, of uh, contract theory and contractualism. Um, um, 
for instance, Thomas Hobbes. So Thomas Hobbes was never mentioned explicitly by Spence, but it, it is clear that it was an implicit interlocutor somehow. Spence talks about the state of nature as a, uh, uh, which was not a state of war indeed. So it's clear that uh, uh, probably, I, I don't know if you read uh, Hobbes uh, directly, but uh, he, he knew what he, what, he, what he had said for sure. Uh, and the, the engagement with contract theory was more on a theoretical level. So I think that Spence's problem, Spence found the, the doctrine of the social compact problematic for basically two, two reasons. The first one was that uh, as it had been expo expounded by Thomas Hobbes, that doctrine implied an opposition between um, the establishment of society and a, a polity and, the, uh, uh, and liberty. So suggesting that uh, if men wanted to establish uh, and live together in a society, uh, that liberty should have been forfeited and uh, given up. And that was, of course, something with which Spence uh, uh, didn't agree. Uh, the second reason was that contract theory, of course, represented um, political order and uh, uh, yeah, the existing political system as the outcome of consent of a collective agreement, and that was for Spence um, um, that that kind of narrative, in, according to Spence, was a profound mystification uh, of the fact that in reality uh, it was not consent but conquest and a violent encroachment on the rights of mankind, uh, which was uh, um, which represented the very origins of uh, political order. Uh, another uh, another uh, problematic intellectual relationship uh, Spence had with John Locke, of course, uh, uh, um, who was not, uh, who did not think uh, being, um, let's say, the the. the the, the main early representative of the liberal branch of contract theory. He didn't. He didn't think that liberty and uh, uh, and uh, political society didn't go together. Quite the contrary, they could go together. But at the same time, uh, Locke became uh, the polemical target of Spence in matters of property because he had uh, represented the uh, uh, human path from, uh, let's say, savagery to civilization, as implying the uh, as implying men uh, that men should uh, give up their common property of the soil and adopt private land ownership, which uh, also Locke extensively justified. Um, so, um, and on that front, I think that the, the engagement was much more on a theoretical level. And yeah, and both, um, and as much as theoretical was also probably the engagement with Thomas Paine, uh, the engagement with Paine, um, who was, yeah, already probably a classic, in the late 18th century was also due to probably a personal rivalry. So Spain was very famous. Uh, and yeah. So I, I just the, the uh, <laughs> I, yeah, I realized the kind of the, in one point towards the end of the book, you described Spence as an ultra radical or writing from an ultra radical perspective. And it was when he was criticizing pain <laughs> as a stooge of the establishment that I yeah. thought that there was something, oh, okay, you're right over here. You're right on this position. Here's the political continuum and you're right over here on the radical, you know, we're not quite left wing, you're not quite there yet, but you know, you're right there if you're accusing pain. I, I, yeah, can you explain that? I, I know you just were, I just wanted to put in that quote because <laughs> it was it was striking to me that um, Spence would be so critical of pain. Um, so yeah, can you explain that rivalry and why he thought pain was on the wrong side? Yeah. 
yeah this is so uh, on the one hand so i think that probably there were yeah there was a personal rivalry going on because of course uh, uh pain was very famous uh, at the end of the 18th century and uh, spence was very poor and persecuted etc um and and according to and Spence was also I think that he deeply admired Spain from a certain point of view because it was uh, uh, the most advanced democratic thinker of the time uh, uh, and a supporter of the revolution so um, it was absolutely uh, um, um, a person who uh, uh, Spence also coined uh, one of his uh, minted one of his coins on the um, three Thomases uh, who were Thomas More, Thomas Paine and Thomas Spence so uh, uh, Thomas Paine deserved to be in, in the group. Uh, however, um, he viewed also him as an ally of the landlord, uh, of the landlord establishment, uh, because he saw that his radicalism was compromised by proprietary limitations. Basically, what Paine wanted was to see uh, monarchy overthrown uh, and a republic and a republic established, but it wasn't ultimately uh, uh, not unconcerned about uh, uh, social relations because that was not even true uh, and also pain at some point engaged uh, with the issue of land reform uh, but at the same time it wasn't uh, it didn't aim at, uh, uh, over, at, at an overthrow of the uh, social establishment uh, of uh, Britain uh, which was for Spence extremely problematic and was also his problem with the French with the with the French Jacobins and the, 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 the theoretical, the intellectual uh, phenomenon is basically the same as with pain. It's very similar. So again, uh, uh, Spence uh, was an enthusiastic supporter of the French Revolution uh, and initially also of the Jacobins, uh, from uh, whom he had drawn the idea that the political order should be violently overthrown, um, the idea of a, a provisional revolutionary government uh, in the transition period. So there was so much he had taken from them. But at the same time at some point he abandoned his admiration uh, for them as he saw that they were ultimately unavailable to engage in a transformation uh, of uh, the property establishment and so uh, over the years he started stressing more and more the fact that the revolution implied by the plan, entailed by the plan, should be a social revolution and not a political revolution and that the political aspect of um, uh, uh, abolishing the monarchy and establishing a republic was secondary, of secondary importance uh, uh, compared to the uh, issue of uh, private property in land, which should be altogether abolished. There's another part of Spencer's plan that we haven't touched on uh, yet, which is the his desire to extend the rights of man, in inverted commas, to other groups. Could you tell us a little bit about uh, Spence's views on, yeah, on rights? Oh, thank you. Uh, thank you, Robin, for this question, because I should have mentioned maybe the issue of rights uh, when speaking about Thomas Paine, because in fact, it was around the issue of rights that the uh, uh, one of the uh, uh, Spence's polemics with Paine uh, uh, went on. Um, and in fact, it was against the author of the um, of the rights of man, Paine, uh, that Spence contentiously redefined his own real rights of man, as he called them, real rights of man. Uh, which in fact uh, implied a substantial, I think, innovation. Because first of all, he, he made his uh, real rights be voiced by 
unconventional uh, political subjects who, un who are not common uh, in histories of political thought. So uh, in one of his, uh, one of his pam pamphlets was uh, um, entitled The Rights of Infants. And it dealt in fact with the rights of infants, which were part of the rights of man. Uh, but in fact, the uh, main character, the main speaker of the pamphlet was not a, a, a child, but was a woman, uh, an, an outraged woman uh, who uh, also, um, while vindicating the rights of uh, infants, uh, also vindicated the rights of women and their role in the um, struggle against oppression. Uh, then uh, what we were saying earlier that another another of one, one other of his pamphlets was about uh, uh, whose uh, title was the reign of felicity, uh, um, the um, rights of man are uh, expounded uh, uh, by uh, Native Americans. Uh, so again, the role of colonized peoples uh, in the um, in the Swinish multitude uh, um, who, who had to undertake the revolution, enslaved people of African origin. So uh, um, uh, all of these, uh, uh, the poor, uh, of course, that was not even, uh, I, I was giving it for granted, but um, that was not, in fact, uh, uh, at the time. Um, um, uh, so, um, yeah, uh, um, the, Spence's real rights of man were, in fact, the rights of men, women, and children, uh, and uh, of all the members of his transnational uh, Swedish multitude. So, he sounds very utopian optimistic this is really it's really sort of transformative uh, stuff that he is putting forward what impact did he have uh in his own time what influence did he have i i, I don't i want to trail this a little bit it seems like some of his influence extended to the caribbean that there was a yeah. the, the dissemination of these ideas that maybe some of our listeners might hear this will sound extremely radical and perhaps a little bit fringe a little bit niche, but there is some evidence that this spread across the globe and had some support, some substantial support in uh, various places. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, um, uh, this is uh, absolutely true. So basically, the uh, especially in the conclusion of the book, uh, I uh, quickly recounted how Spence was deemed an insane person uh, by some of his contemporaries. And, and that was uh, uh, quite common. Uh, it, it, most mostly due to the extreme radicalism of his views, which he was not even afraid of uh, telling uh, the uh, members of the court at the court of King's Bench. Uh, so that that uh, could sound a little, uh, yeah. Uh, I I think that these uh, ac these accusations of madness uh, uh, um, might be understandable. Um, however, while someone pitied um, his uh, alleged madness, um, the author state authorities, I think, were aware that Thomas Pence and his plan represented a threat to the established order. And in fact, the repression he was victim of provides evidence of the fact that state authorities took him and his plan seriously. And in fact, this is also, I think, related to what would happen to the afterlife of Spence's thought after Spence's death, um, because is it's true his uh, most of his uh, views uh, sound utopian uh, but his uh, direct followers the so-called Spence and philanthropists uh, uh, would fuel the anxieties of the British uh, property establishment uh, from Spence's death until at least 1820. Um, um, in fact uh, um, uh, 
it was uh, Spence's thought uh, after 1814, so yeah, uh, the, the era of Spence's death, uh, fueled what E.P. Thompson has called the illegal tradition, uh, which survived in Britain, um, especially in streets and uh, pubs uh, um, through to the mid 19th century. Um, and this illegal tradition came to be organized more formally into the society of Spence and philanthropists. Um, uh, the Spence and philanthropists became the leading group within London insurrectionary politics. Um, uh, they became the indefatigable orators and agitators of the uh, London underground. Um, they also talked subversive uh, messages on walls throughout the city. Uh, uh, there's this uh, quote, uh, this uh, quote from William Cobbett saying in 1816, we have all seen um, in the last years uh, uh, written on the walls uh, these words, Spence's plan. Um, so the, apparently the society managed to uh, gather followers from the social, uh, from the lowest social orders poor artisans and laborers, uh, but also religious enthusiasts, uh, pornographers, and also immigrants of African descent uh, from the Caribbean. Um, and in order to precipitate, so basically what the Spensons, they were not uh, uh, thinkers, most of them were not thinkers, uh, uh, they uh, took Spence's plan, they took the Spencer doctrine and tried to uh, give uh, um, uh, to give it uh, a practical implementation. Um, in order to precipitate a general insurrection, they organized mass meetings uh, in London in 1816, 1817. Uh, and there, uh, uh, they, they, they wanted, so the secret plan was to uh, lead, to inflame the mob and lead uh, uh, protesters to assault the uh, uh, Tower of London, the Bank of England, establish a provisional government, which would uh, ultimately cancel, uh, 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 sorry, abolish uh, private land ownership. So the, the, the ultimate purpose was a stance on one. Um, However, despite these organizational efforts, uh, the riots uh, met with failure, uh, and these also exacerbated the uh, um, uh, the um, um, violent uh, nature of the group. Um, a turning point is usually uh, is usually identified in the Peterloo massacre of 1819 uh, in Manchester. Um, um, as the uh, Peterloo massacre uh, of uh, uh, working class uh, protesters uh, were uh, interpreted by some of the Spensons as the um, um, evidence of the inefficacy of nonviolent action. Um, so the, the government was deeply, um, was deeply concerned about the Spensons. I have not mentioned that in 1817, the Seditious Meetings Act uh, uh, banned all societies referring to Thomas Spence. Uh, and uh, um, um, some scholars have uh, pointed out that uh, this, is, this makes Spensonism probably the only political ideology to have ever been outlawed explicitly by the British Parliament. Um, so the, the, the government, being concerned about the Spensons, publicized uh, in 1820 a ministerial dinner in London uh, in February 1820, uh, and the Spensons uh, um, uh, planned the assassination of the cabinet. Um, uh, which is known as the Cato Street Conspiracy. Uh, the plot, uh, however, was foiled by a spy. Um, the leaders were discovered and arrested. Some of them were transported to uh, New South Wales uh, and the major uh, plotters uh, were executed on May Day, 1820. And the failure of the conspiracy, of course, was um, uh, um, 
a hard blow uh, to Spensianism uh, as a movement, uh, but it did not condemn uh, the ideas of Spence to oblivion. Um, uh, I have uh, maybe uh, maybe now uh, I, I, I should talk about the um, uh, uh, transnational side of the plan. I, I have no time to delve into this, but just to mention it very briefly, um, uh, Robert Owen was uh, with this cooperative movement was influenced by Spence's plan. Uh, in a way which made the plan appear under completely new guises um, uh, and more faithful to the plan were instead the Chartists. Uh, the, the Spence's plan became a lodestar, uh, 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 was assumed as a lodestar by the Chartist movement to outline their own Chartist land plan in the 1840s. Um, However, I just wanted to say uh, a few words on the um, uh, transnational aspect that you were mentioning. Um, um, uh, in fact, uh, yeah, one way or the other, uh, the plan managed to land in the West Indies a few years after Spence's death. Um, I have already mentioned that Spence considered uh, enslaved peoples of African origins as part of his revolutionary coalition, the Swinish multitude. Um, and um, in, from some passages of his works, uh, he also made it clear that he considered the Caribbean as a favorable location for the establishment of his plan. He was also influenced by the Haitian Revolution because at some point he also mentioned uh, San Domingo, uh, calling it Santo Domingo, uh, in the very same years of the Haitian Revolution. Um, um, this was also probably the reason uh, why Spensianism was able to attract disciples from followers from colonial uh, contexts. Um, uh, I, I said that at least one of the, sorry, at least two of the Spensians uh, were Jamaicans. So if we know that, uh, or I mean, there, are, there is evidence that uh, an address of the Society of Spensian Philanthropists was uh, reprinted in a Jamaican periodical in 1817. Uh, that was also reprinted with um, uh, um, an editorial comment uh, which de demolished Spensianism as a doctrine. So it's really weird to see an a very negative editorial comment, uh, but at the same time, the address of the Spensian philanthropists uh, reprinted uh, the full version of it. Um, uh, but even more remarkably, Spence's plan was probably implicated in Busta's uh, rebellion of April 1816, sorry, uh, the largest slave revolt in the history of Barbados. Um, in fact, uh, the report of the Select Committee of the House of Assembly of the Island, uh, which had been appointed to inquire into the causes of the rebellion, uh, informed uh, that the white colonists of the island blamed abolitionism and Spensianism for having fueled the slave revolt. Um, so these uh, reports provide reliable evidence of an African-Caribbean circulation, uh, propagation of the plan, and shows how also how alarming the Spensian doctrine sounded in plantation societies. If the slave-owning members of the uh, Barbanian Assembly were aware of the plan of Thomas Pence, it is possible that the enslaved knew it as well, precisely thanks to the transatlantic circulation of periodicals. In fact, the report also repeatedly stressed that the slaves had been deluded, uh, the report says, by the information that uh, the literate among them had been able to read in the British newspapers sold in Bridgetown. So that, that, that could be a way uh, through which uh, enslaved people might have known about the plan. Um, so Thomas Pence, uh, uh, maybe it's 
too bold to say that he never set foot outside of England. Maybe he visited Scotland, but he spent basically his entire life in England. However, his plan uh, managed to land in the West Indies a couple of years after his death and may well uh, have contributed to the um, probably to the intellectual inspiration of the largest labor world in the history of Barbados. Um, and probably, uh, uh, this is uh, my suggestion, it was precisely probably Spence's concern with the land, uh, uh, which uh, seemed to many the uh, anachronistic feature of his thought in Britain, in a Britain then undergoing industrialization, it was probably precisely this element which rendered him and his plan relevant from Atlanta's Atlantic perspective, where the relationship between uh, uh, land and dispossession of indigenous peoples and land and plantation slavery, of course, was uh, uh, to so many people uh, uh, an, everyday, uh, an, an everyday truth. And so uh, correspondingly also the potential relationship between the possession, the repossession of the land and freedom. Okay, that's fantastic. I suppose so one of the questions that I, I possibly trailed earlier was talking about well, the point of you know, the, why it is desirable for us as intellectual historians to be undertaking intellectual histories from below. I think because we're running out of time a bit, and because you've given us a very good answer to what, you know, his, the example of Spence is a very good answer to the question, why should we study intellectual history from below? Because you get different voices that are influential at the time. It requires you to move away from uh, traditional you know, focus on the political treatise and into sort of a variety of different sources. It's a very different historical project you've undertaken here than someone like me who's going to sit down with Adam Smith and sort of trawl through. Um, so I, I think I think you have answered that through the example of Spence, your discussion of Spence. So I do want to end on our penultimate question will be, um, you end the book suggesting that Spence may still have something to say to contemporary radical theory, radical theory in the here and now. Um, could you develop that point a little bit? Should we be reading Spence to think about how property functions today? Oh, uh, thank you uh, for this uh, question. So, um, yeah, uh, I think that um, uh, Spence is actually able to speak to us today um, insofar as he interpreted reality in such um, a radical and unconventional way that he was able to devise notions that can still be used in today's war and are, are used. Um, so the last chapter of the book, as you, as you mentioned, um, uh, tries to cautiously project Spence's thought beyond these times uh, by showing the modernity and the relevance, for instance, of his notion of common property. Um, uh, which is still resonating in today's radical debates. Um, <clears throat> I know that in history, no such thing as anticipation exists. Uh, so I don't want to argue that Spence anticipated anything. Nonetheless, I think that he originally adopted and developed notions uh, from that of common property to that of multitude, which have been recovered by some scholars today uh, in the wake of the uh, growing awareness that some of the uh, traditional categories of social analysis, uh, um, such as the distinction between private and, pu and public property, or the very same notion of a working class, um, seem kind of unable to account for the transformations occurred under contemporary capitalism. So from this perspective, I think that Spence occupies an interesting theoretical position because he was living in the years 
in which capitalism was in the making, was unfolding, and socialism was being born uh, in Britain. Um, and he advocated a new social and political system, which was neither capitalist nor socialist. And uh, there are some other um, um, uh, proposals of his plan uh, which resonate to today's in today's world. Uh, his proposal of dividends, uh, which several scholars have interpreted as the forefather of the current claim for an unconditional basic income. Uh, Spence's proposal for the the redistribution of dividends was in fact quite radical. Uh, he said that so th these dividends could be uh, redistributed perpetually and unconditionally uh, to everyone, irrespective of age, uh, of uh, gender, of employment, also criminal record, and even citizenship. Because uh, uh, he said that uh, after only a 12-month residence in Aspenson Parish, everyone was entitled to receive the, uh, the dividends. Uh, these dividends would uh, uh, really uh, ensure everyone, uh, grant everyone the means to live without the need uh, to work. Uh, so with, without the necessity, uh, the necessity uh, of working. Uh, another uh, example which makes really Spence uh, speak to today's world somehow um, is that it could also be seen at the origins of the current notion of copyleft, for instance. Uh, he was uh, he, he thought that also he, the, the, the notion of common property really permeated every aspect of his thought. Uh, he thought that also knowledge and inventions were a common property because no individual, according to him, could generate new ideas without relying on a common intellectual stock and on and availing themselves of communication with others. So Spence thought that um, uh, he opposed patents and he wrote in his constitution that uh, patents would be abolished. Um, because he saw them as an instrument of the privatization of knowledge and he said that uh, the parliament, the Spence and parliament had to pay inventors uh, uh, and then they, the, the parliament would be obliged to uh, 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 systematically publish the invention. So maybe another thing that I could say, uh, if we still have a couple of minutes, um, uh, is that another reason for which I think that Spence uh, speaks uh, to us today is that he provides us with a kind of a theory of a struggle with, um, in today's vocabulary, could be called intersectional. Um, his revolutionary agent, the Swanish multitude, featured a very peculiar composition, have, as I have said uh, um, yeah, quite a few times. It was transnational and multi-ethnic. It incorporated the poor, former commoners, laborers of the new industrial systems, soldiers and sailors, enslaved and colonized peoples, uh, women and children. Um, so um, this is maybe another thing uh, which, uh, for which Spence could be of inspiration. Okay, <clears throat> it is a very interesting book, and thank you for talking uh, through it with us today. Uh, we always ask uh, this question as our final one: uh, What are you now working on? Having finished with, have you finished with Spence? Are you moving on to something or someone else? Um, oh, uh, yeah. So basically, my my project now uh, is on uh, philanthropy and uh, the British Empire, on on philanthropic associations across the British Empire, uh, but not uh, not philanthropists as the Spence and philanthropists, but uh, um, uh, philanthropists engaged in the uh, um, promotion of uh, international and social order in the colonies. So uh, I'm now looking at the uh, Aboriginal Protection Society and Aboriginal protectorates. Uh, 
in, in protectorates of Aborigines uh, in uh, colonial Australia. Uh, but I'm also still uh, trying to work on spans uh, to look at periodicals um, uh, with um, digitization pro a project that I'm uh, carrying out with a colleague of mine here in Frankfurt. And we are trying to uh, look at uh, digitized uh, newspapers and periodicals uh, databases uh, to see uh, uh, if the plan, if the name of Thomas Pence or the or of the Spensons were mentioned uh, in periodicals uh, from yeah uh, approximately uh, the beginning of the 19th century until yeah uh, 1848, 1850. Uh, so yeah. Um, All right, sounds fascinating. We'll look forward to uh, consuming those fruits when they appear. So, Dr. Matilda Gonzola, many thank you, many thank yous, many thanks uh, for your time today. Goodbye. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye.